Welcome everybody to this talk sponsored by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new here, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's degree programs, including two that are online, and 18 certificates of graduate study. If you are at all interested in learning more about us, please feel welcome to grab a staff member after the event. Additionally, to support the work of IWP, please visit us at iwp.edu forward slash donate. Today we'll be hearing from Dr. Peter Campbell, who will deliver a lecture entitled From General to Statesman, Ulysses S. Grant, Military Realism and Foreign Policy in partnership with Baylor University. Dr. Peter Campbell is an Associate Professor of Political Science at Baylor University. He holds an MA in War Studies from King's College London and a PhD in Political Science from the University of Notre Dame. He is the author of Military Realism, The Logic and Limits of Force and Innovations in the U.S. Army. His areas of research include national security, decision-making, civil-military relations, strategy, international relations, scholarship, and policy relevance, insurgency and counterinsurgency, the just war tradition, and cyber warfare. With that, please welcome Dr. Peter Campbell. You're good? Yep. They turned my tracking device on, so if I try to run away, they'll be able to find me. Hi, everybody. Um, let me begin, gonna, this is the topic we're going to talk about. He introduced me, so I have to introduce myself again, um, just with some acknowledgments. Uh, first, thank you to the Institute of World Politics for um, helping organize this event. Uh, delight to be here in person. I did uh, a virtual event a while back, which was really good. That was actually on Grant's uh, Civil War memoir. So I'm just moving chronologically on what I'll do, Grant's retirement next maybe. Um, so thank you. Uh, thank you to Baylor and Washington um, for their uh, organization skills in getting me out here. Um, and especially thank you to the Baylor and Washington students. It's been just a real pleasure working with you guys and getting to know you. Um, yeah, look forward to to seeing where you go from here. Um, and then I have to uh, say thank you to the Baylor University Teaching Development Grant, which um, gave me the grant that made this trip possible. Really, this presentation wouldn't be happening if it weren't for um, a website called the Classics of Strategy and Diplomacy, uh, which you can look up at classicsofstrategy.com. Um, Patrick Garrity, uh, may he rest in peace, uh, you know, reached out to me at one point and said, hey, do you want to write a paper on Grant's Civil War memoir? I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. And then I got the book and it was like 900 pages. I said, give me, give me two months. Uh, he was very patient. Um, and then that led to this, uh, to this, what is a book chapter, uh, maybe an article, we'll see. Um, so I just really appreciate uh, their help in getting this off the ground. Um, and then, as with all acknowledgments, despite all their efforts, there may be some errors in this uh, presentation. So, uh, if any blame or fault is attached to the attempt, it is mine alone. Anybody know who said that? This is uh, Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, he wrote this on the eve of D-Day because he was pretty sure there was a 50% chance it would fail. Um, so I think that Eisenhower's skepticism about the likelihood of success on D-Day um, was due to what I call his military realist perspective about the use of force. And so that's one of the things I'm going to talk about today. Uh, but I'm going to talk about 
this in the case of Ulysses S. Grant. Now, this was a perspective that he shared with Eisenhower. Okay, but where we have to begin is sort of the so what question, right? Why should you care? Um, well, why study generals turned who become statesmen? There's a growing concern in the United States about the growing influence of the military in American politics. Um, generals are becoming secretaries of states. That, that's not that, unu that unusual. Secretaries of defense, again. But engaging in partisan politics, um, these, these are things that are, that are concerning. And when we combine that with an unprecedented levels of public respect and trust for the military, we can start to worry about what does that mean for American civil-military relations? And then what does it mean for American foreign policy? Right, if more and more military officers are populating the policy circles that are deciding on foreign policy, what's the result gonna be, right? So some questions. Will the political rise of military officers make war more likely? Right, so if we have more military officers in um, these foreign policy positions, will we get more war? Will military advice on foreign policy tend to favor the use of force? Right, these are questions that people have been asking for uh, a very long time. Um, and so there have been a number of answers. Okay? So uh, some say the American people think yes. Right? The military is always straining at the leash to use force. It's some classic images of uh, the, the sort of archetype, right? George C. Scott as Patton. All true Americans love the sting of battle, uh, as he said. And uh, uh, General Ripper from Dr. Strangelove, who releases a surprise nuclear attack on the Soviet Union. Um, and then George C. Scott plays uh, Buck Turgidson. If you haven't seen Dr. Strangelove, do yourself a favor, um, watch it. So the, one of the fears is that military officers have a narrow perspective on foreign policy. They think, some people argue, that force will solve most foreign policy problems. The old adage, right, when, when all you have is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. If force is all you know how to use, then you're gonna use it. Theorists of bureaucracy, back up this argument. They say, well, there's parochial goals that the military has, and those are actually best served by offensive military doctrines, right? By aggressive military doctrines. I'm not gonna go into detail about how that works. We can talk about that in the Q&A. Theorists of military culture say yes, right? There are aggressive norms embedded in the culture of the United States Army, for instance, from their finest hour uh, in World War II. This is a famous quote from Patton that he wrote to a subordinate about how to behave uh, while they were pursuing the Germans. And he said, whenever you have doubts, attack. Right? In case of doubt, attack. So this aggressive culture in the US Army will mean that when these leaders get into foreign policy decision-making positions, they're gonna favor the use of force. Others argue this is not the case. Right, Richard Betts, in his um, very good book, Soldiers, Statesmen, Cold War Crisis, argues that military leaders actually are often less likely to recommend force than their civilian counterparts. Huntington, 
right? Samuel Huntington off, uh, says in his famous book, The Soldier and the State, that military officers are conservative about the use of force, inherently cautious about its use. And Robert Gates, who was actually the source of the first quote about the military straining at the leash, he says, the American people think the military is always straining at the leash to use force, when in fact, he says, the biggest doves in Washington wear uniforms. Uh, and then this other quack, Peter Campbell, uh, argues in Military Realism, The Logic and Limits of Force and Innovation in the U.S. Army, uh, that through an examination of U.S. Army doctrine from 1958 to 2018, yes, I did read that many army manuals, uh, U.S. Army doctrine was often highly defensive and overcame parochial interests in the name of adaptation. That is a controversial statement to anybody who studied the U.S. Army, so we can have a fight about that in the Q&A if you'd like. I can't get into it right now, but I'm ready to, ready to defend my position. Okay, so what is military realism? I've been talking a little bit about this. Um, so military realism is a uh, theory that I uh, have come up with. Um, it's published now, so it's true. Uh, and what it argues basically is that the preparation of and the experience of war produces a military realist mindset that has two parts. Uh, anybody who's read their Clausewitz will recognize most of these. Okay, they focus on the radical uncertainty that is inherent in the use of force. Right? That when you start to use force to try to achieve an objective, you can't say in advance where things are going to go. Right? You can't say in advance what the end result is going to be. They also emphasize the physical and psychological frictions present in war always. So, speaking of Clausewitz, from book seven of On War, everything is very simple in war, but the simplest thing is difficult. These difficulties accumulate and produce a friction which no man can imagine exactly who has not seen war. And this is very nicely echoed, I think, in an um, interview with General Stanley McChrystal, where he says this, For me, war is sort of like something radioactive that you shouldn't touch unless you've done a tremendous amount of understanding of just the damage that it will do. So war is this unpredictable um, element that you unleash when you decide to use force. So basically what I, what I argue in, in military realism and what I'll argue in the, the subsequent book that tries to apply this theory to foreign policy decision making is that military, the military realist mindset, this is the source of the military conservatism that Huntington talked about. And I think it's especially ingrained in senior military officers some who become heads of state. Okay, important caveat here. Because force tends to escalate, right? Is that um, when you start using force, when you start trying to impose your will on other people, they get upset, right? And they will react very strongly and in unpredictable ways. So when once the decision to engage in force has been made, then military officers say, we need overwhelming force. 
Okay? If, if this is the way you want to go, if this is the path you want to take, we need overwhelming force to enable escalation and to combat the unforeseen and inevitable frictions that are going to happen once you start trying to achieve political ends with violence. Okay, so that's an important caveat because people will, you know, point to the Vietnam War and say things like, well, they wanted 600,000 troops. That's insane. Uh, and that's what Johnson thought. And he said, I'll give you 50,000 in little increments. And I'm not activating the reserves. Uh, by the time Johnson declares his decision not to go for re-election, there are 560,000 U.S. troops in Vietnam. So maybe they weren't that far off, off by a couple by ten, tens of thousands. Okay, some preliminary large end data because that means lots of observations for the non-political science folks in the room. Um, Michael Horowitz, Alan Stamm, and Callie Ellis wrote a very interesting book called Why Leaders Fight. And in Why Leaders Fight, they tracked the life experience of over 2,000 heads of state between 1875 and 2004. And they've since updated it to 2011. So the question was here, among heads of state, what life experiences correlate with threats or the use of force in foreign policy? So is there something that we can look at that leaders had in their background that made them more or less likely to threaten the use of force or use force in foreign policy? So interestingly, what they found is that leaders with limited military experience and without combat experience were among the most likely to threaten or initiate the use of force in foreign policy. Uh, I've since had some statisticians uh, look over the data again because there's some interesting variables they don't pay attention to, like someone, does some, did somebody have a military career? Well, if you had a military career, there's a 33% decrease in the likelihood that you'll use force in foreign policy. Okay, so this isn't just a American phenomenon, right? There's something deeper going on here. And as I, as I try to point out, I'm arguing that it's military realism. So this finding is highly consistent with military realism. So that made me want to ask, right, how might a military realist perspective impact foreign policy thinking and leadership? And that's why I'm talking about General Grant, right? Um, and I argue that General Grant is actually a uh, perfect case, an ideal case for testing this. There's the man himself. Okay, so uh, there, there are some things that I'm not gonna talk about tonight that, are, that really beg to be discussed. Grant becomes president during Reconstruction. Okay, an incredibly tumultuous period in American history. He deploys forces, military forces, internally inside the United States in places like South Carolina. I'm not going to talk about that because I just don't have time, but I'd love to get into it a little bit in the Q&A. So he's elected president in 1868. Gideon Wells, who was obviously no friend of Grant, who was Secretary of Navy under Lincoln and Johnson, called Grant a political idiot. Right? Now, interestingly, even people who were close to Grant William Tecumseh Sherman and John Rawlins worried that he was ill-suited to politics, right? that he shouldn't be put in that position. John Rawlins argued that Grant was, quote, not a politician or a statesman, not a man of ability outside of the profession of arms. So Grant is barely out of uniform 
before he's thrown into politics and put in charge of American foreign policy for eight years. That's why I argue this is an ideal case for, because we can't say that Grant's former political experience is doing the work, as we'd say in political science, right? That's not, uh, that can't be the explanation. So this is a good way to observe the interaction between foreign policy and the military mind and military realism. Okay, first case I wanna look at is uh, the crisis over Cuba. Uh, the man on the top is John Rawlins, 1831 to 1869. That last date will become important in a moment. And the man on the bottom with the incredible uh, sideburns is Hamilton Fish. Uh, that's, um, Rawlins becomes Grant's Secretary of War and uh, Hamilton Fish becomes Grant's Secretary of State. So just before Grant assumes the presidency, Cuban insurgents launch a guerrilla war against the Spanish occupiers uh, in their country. And Spain brutally crushes the rebellion uh, and any of its supporters, some of whom we'll discover were actually Americans. So Grant takes office, uh, uh, Chernow says in his magnum opus, Grant, uh, there's, when he takes off, there's incredible public pressure to act in Cuba, okay? And it was increasing daily. Rawlins, Grant's Secretary of War and a very close friend of Grant, who was with him through the entire Civil War, uh, said the U.S. should intervene. He said it's the duty of the United States to intervene on behalf of these freedom fighters. Rawlins is dying of tuberculosis, and he still goes to all of these cabinet meetings to argue literally with his last breaths for U.S. intervention in Cuba. Hamilton Fish argues against recognition of the rebels and intervention. Grant sides with Fish against intervention despite Rollins pleading, and Rollins dies not long after this, uh, this, this decision is made. Um, and if you read the section in Chernow's book where he, where he describes this, it's just, it's heart-wrenching. But Grant decides intervention is not the way to go. Intent, there's intense media and public pressure to intervene. It continues into the following years. Uh, Americans start organizing raiding parties to Cuba. And some of them are captured and executed by the Spanish government. So you can imagine the amount of pressure that Grant's feeling. Congress actually tries to recognize the Cuban, they try to go over Grant's head and recognize the rebels themselves. Grant sends a message to Congress, which you can read on the, the uh, US government website, where he reiterates why the rebels should not be recognized and talks about the dangers. Okay, so he says, according to international law, they're not legitimate combatants. They have no government, they have no organized military, and they hold no territory. These are exactly the uh, reasons that Hamilton Fish gives for uh, not recognizing them. And then he says, recognition will most likely produce escalation and war with the Spanish Empire, and that will devastate U.S. economic interests in the Western Hemisphere. So uh, Grant wins, by the way. Uh, Congress does not recognize the rebels after his intervention, which, again, is, is closely linked with the concept that force leads to more force. So Grant refuses 
to be driven into war by public enthusiasm for it. Right? He resists pressure coming from his own cabinet, Congress, the media, and the public. Okay, so everybody, almost everybody wants war in this case. Grant actually deploys the U.S. Navy to protect commerce against the Spanish, but also to stop Americans from going to fight in Cuba. Okay, Grant, the old soldier, as one scholar calls him, if he, was, if he had been itching to go to war, he had extensive public and political support to do so. If war was his objective, if he had this narrow view of foreign policy, everything he needed was there, and the Spanish had provided ample pretext by doing things like uh, executing Americans to uh, justify such an intervention. Instead, Grant defies popular and elite pressure and refuses to intervene. Okay, so that's one case down. We will not get through all the cases if that clock is right. Okay, let's talk about an interesting, in some ways, non-case, and that is the almost annexation of Santo Domingo, or the Dominican Republic. So the U.S. had previously tried to annex Santo Domingo, uh, actually Grant's predecessor, Johnson, one of the least popular American presidents ever, uh, tried, but was rebuffed by the U.S. Senate, which was jealous of its foreign policy prerogatives. It had a very attractive strategic position, and that's one of the things that attracted Grant to it. It's off the eastern tip of Cuba. It would be a superb coaling station for both commercial and military vessels. It commands the sea lines of communication leading to the Isthmus of Panama. And from there, the U.S. could eventually, Grant argued, challenge British domination of this vital trade route and more effectively enforce the Monroe Doctrine. In, in essence, it had all the advantages of Cuba without having to eject the Spanish Empire uh, in order to get it. Right? Especially, well, what, what is now Santo Domingo is uh, the, the port. So Grant wants to annex the island. He's like, this is perfect strategically. We need this thing. Hamilton Fish is totally opposed. He thinks it's a terrible idea. Grant disagrees, and he sets in motion a plan to write up a treaty to annex Santo Domingo. Here, Grant's military experience and his political inexperience produce a foreign policy failure. And this case is important because one might be tempted to think that I'm advocating that we should just make generals always presidents, right? All, all presidents should be generals because they're the best at it, right? Not really. There's, uh, there's a lot that goes into foreign policy that isn't the use of force or the contemplation of the use of force. So before the battles in the Civil War, Grant always kept his plans secret. And he does the same here, right? Uh, Gene Edward Smith, another fantastic book about Grant, he says, reflecting his experience at Vicksburg, and crossing the James, Grant preferred to keep his plans secret until he could spring a fate accompli. It worked in war, but the tactic often led him astray in politics. So Grant's penchant for secrecy, which was produced, I think, by his military realist perspective, uh, led him astray in this instance. And this is why, 
right? So for the treaty to succeed, Grant needed to build political support in the Senate. And he visits uh, Sumner, who's the chair of the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he thinks that he's basically gotten Sumner's approval. But if you go back and you read what Sumner says, you realize actually he was just, it was just bureaucratic speak, right? He's like, I will consider, I will consider all of our options. Grant seemed to think that that was a promise. In the, uh, in the end, Sumner becomes the chief opponent of the treaty and defeats it in the Senate. And Hamilton Fish saw it coming because Hamilton Fish says that the Senate rejected Johnson's proposal about Santo Domingo because it was jealous of its prerogatives in foreign policy and instinctively it opposed anything that the executive favored. So in this case, Grant's military experience but lack of political experience produced, uh, undermined his foreign policy objectives. Later, Grant himself recognizes this. He says, I thought I could run the government of the United States as I did the staff of my army. It was my mistake, and it led me into other mistakes. Right? So he was self-reflective. This is from uh, interviews when he's traveling around the world after he, uh, stops, uh, after he leaves the presidency. So while the military realist perspective is beneficial to foreign policy, it is definitely not sufficient in itself. Military realists can have important blind spots. Okay. Uh, the other case is about the Alabama claims, and we can talk about that in Q&A. Uh, just for a little bit of background, right? the Alabama was a Confederate raiding ship constructed in Great Britain that preyed on Union shipping during the Civil War. Uh, Grant and a number of people in the Senate wanted a, an apology from Great Britain for building these ships. Hamilton Fish said, that's a really bad idea because you're gonna embarrass the British. Um, and just the two key points that he makes, we can just jump to them, right? Fish convinces Grant that of the importance of restoring good relations with Great Britain, especially economic, and Boutwell, his treasury secretary, convinces Grant and the Senate. Here, Grant listens to Fish again. This is gonna to lead to an obvious objection, right? Let me go to the objection. Well, this sounds like a story of, of Fish's incredible judgment and skills, not Grant's, right? Shouldn't, isn't the hero of the story Hamilton Fish? Well, keep in mind, the fact that Fish was given the helm of foreign policy to produce what was uh, later called the, um, the Washington Treaty was not a foregone conclusion. Uh, Grant gives him the freedom to do that, I argue, because he's, um, he's using what's in the military called the, the principle of mission command. We can talk about its origins in military realism. Uh, but I wanna leave enough time for Q&A. Um, let's see what I wanna jump to here. Okay, let's just, so what are you talking about, Dr. Campbell? What do you think we should do? Oh, this is a good one. Okay, so, sorry. This is, <laughs> this is uh, Gene Edward Smith talking about Mission Command, and he says this about Grant's uh, co collaboration with Hamilton Fish over the Washington Treaty. The plain-spoken president, comfortable with accepting final responsibility, was content to leave day-to-day -day tactics in the hands of his foreign policy subordinate. And Fish, a master of diplomatic nuance, 
played his negotiating hand cards deftly, encouraged by the knowledge of Grant's trust and support. It's not easy to give your subordinates freedom, right, to make mistakes, but that's exactly what Grant does, and I argue he learned that from the Civil War. On May 8, 1871, the Treaty of Washington was signed, and this is the fruits of Grant and Fish's diplomatic collaboration. Okay, um, if you're wondering, this is from a famous meeting at Camp David between John F. Kennedy and Dwight Eisenhower after the failure of the Bay of Pigs. Fascinating reading. Um, yeah, wait till the book comes out, I guess, to read about that. Uh, so one of the important things is I'm not saying that military realism overthrows theories of military culture or military bureaucracy, right? The mil military bureaucracies are a thing. They have incentives, right? They, they drive some behavior. But mil the military realist perspective, I argue, can provide leaders with a realistic assessment of the utility and limits of force and foreign policy. So quite the opposite of what people think of officers maybe as warmongers, for instance. So adding a military realist perspective to foreign policy deliberations will actually decrease the likelihood that force will be used in foreign policy. Um, including senior military leaders is not necessarily a pana panacea against foreign policy missteps as Grant's um, misstep with Santo Domingo shows. Right, so the intention here is not to argue that. Instead, those with military experience and a military realist outlook do have blind spots, right? They're not, they're not by any means perfect, uh, but foreign policy is a team sport. Perspective and experience of, the perspective and experience of political leaders remains essential to foreign policy. So this is not an advocating, you know, dictatorships, for instance, for the United States. Uh, the military realist outlook might be necessary for developing sound foreign policy, but given the political, economic, and social diversity of foreign policy issues, it is certainly not sufficient. Okay, and then hopefully, as I've shown today, by being someone who is not in the military and never has been, and who's teaching you about military realism, uh, the military realist perspective need not be limited to military officers. So it can be learned. Okay, thank you, and I'm looking forward to your questions. Thank you. We have about 20 minutes for oh, perfect. the portion. We'll have the mics so it catches on our camera. So if you guys have a question, just raise your hand and I will come around. You can speak to the small silver piece on the front there. So the 20th uh, century equivalent mm -hmm. of Grant was Eisenhower. Eisenhower pulled out of Korea, but on the other hand, Eisenhower did a lot of sabotage, sure. CIA type stuff. Mm -hmm, do you mm -hmm. count that as military or do you count that as some other thing? No, I count that as, I count, so covert action you're yeah. referring to specifically. Um, those are things that Eisenhower undertakes in order to avoid the overt use of military force. Uh, and actually, interestingly, there's a, in the expansion, if you can believe there's an expansion of what I just tried to present, um, where I talk about the almost war in Mexico right after the American Civil War. Grant actually says, we should invade Mexico tomorrow. And 
the Secretary of State says, we're not going to do that. Uh, but the reason Grant's doing it is because the, the Confederate soldiers are escaping into Mexico, and he thinks that the Civil War will never end if the U.S. doesn't pursue them into Mexico and defeat them decisively. So the political leaders, uh, including Johnson, tell Grant he can't do that. Grant then engages in covert action to support the Mexican rebels, and they actually eject the, uh, the French imperialists in the end through that covert action. So I don't think covert action or the use of covert action is necessarily contrary to military realism. Um, I think Eisenhower thought it was preferable because it didn't require sending US troops into these situations to try and fix whatever the, the crisis was. So might you get more covert action if you have generals who are heads of state? It seems like probably. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, another thing that people don't recognize, so the first chapter of the book will be on Washington. Um, there's a lot of really great work being done on Washington's spies, right? So the sort of covert side of, of Washington's war. Um, it's not all just like crossing the Delaware, but I mean, attacking on Christmas Day, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And that's, uh, yeah, that's something that I, that I address in the, the wider project. Yeah. I'm curious about your observation of previous political experience um, as, a, as a tends, tending to limit um, uh, military leaders' willingness to be uh, uh, interventionists. But Grant's previous political experience mm -hmm. was replacing Stanton as Secretary of Defense, and right. he refused Johnson's orders to arrest the radicals in Congress, right? Right. Right. Yes. Is, so use, is, is that did that have an impact? I mean, I I do address that brief stint of him as as Secretary of War, um, but not in. It's not a central part of the argument, but I, but I take the point. It's that that sort of goes in with the Reconstruction piece, right? These interesting uh, issues that Grant has with using force within the United States, because he uses he sends troops into South Carolina, for instance. But there are many other, Louisiana, for instance, where he could easily have justified the use of, of force to reimpose martial law, but didn't. Um, and another, so this also comes up in the Eisenhower case with the enforcement of Brown v. Board of Education. So, yeah, great question. So how long does this book have to be, right? Like 5,000 pages? Thank you for your talk. Um, I'm curious about how this theory fits into the trend of uh, American isolationism mm -hmm. after periods of war. Mm -hmm. And I think you could also say that there's a lot of public opinion that goes into those mm -hmm. periods of isolationism. So how does a statesman with military experience fit there? Yeah. So those periods of isolation historically are also periods of demobilization, right? So as... Um, Military realist leaders will be less likely to recommend the use of force internationally if the military is shrinking rapidly. Because the means simply are not present to do anything. Even if you thought it was a good idea or you thought it was necessary, the means to actually uh, act on it are not present. So I would say in that case, the tendency towards isolationism among, among the, the American people would be reinforced by a, a military realist perspective. Yeah. Great question. 
Hi, great talk. Thank you so much. Um, my question is uh, a little bit outside the scope, just extrapolating a bit. Um, we're sort of, you know, I don't know how long you want to say we are from Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, closer to Afghanistan, like obviously. To me, yeah, yesterday to you, for me, you know, born 1998, it's a, kind of a memory, a distant memory. Um, not even one probably, but we are at a place now where the Congress should have a fair number of vets. Maybe it has mm. fewer than one would expect. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't done those calculations, but we are seeing some. And we are also in a stage looking towards, you know, the future great power war with China potentially mm -hmm. on the horizon and takes a lot of restraint, I think, both in the executive, but also in the Congress. Have you thought at all about how military experience and military realism exists also within the Congress with mm -hmm. the veterans and, you know, the people who occupy those sort of representative positions there and, and the influence they have with the president and also with the military from the legislative branch? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it, it potentially will have an impact. And there's a fantastic book on that called Why Veterans Run. Um, and we are seeing an increased number of veterans because you have, you know, over a decade of war after 9-11. Um, now, this is where I think maybe uh, Horowitz and Stam's work, analysis work, is helpful because what it'll depend on in part is were they combat veterans, right? Or are they these, these leaders that have limited military experience but not combat experience? They might actually be more likely to recommend force. Um, I think especially if their military education. So if they if they haven't really had a military career, so you can be a veteran with, without having had a military career, without having you know engaged in professional military education. And I think the longer you are in a military organization, the stronger the military realist perspective becomes. So if they're very young veterans with uh, limited combat experience and short times, think of John F. Kennedy. Right? How many Americans were in Vietnam when John F. Kennedy was assassinated? 16,000. Right? He was, in some ways, very aggressive. Um, I don't know if you consider getting your boat you know, broken in half uh, combat, but uh, he was quite aggressive in, in foreign policy, to his detriment sometimes. Bay of Pigs comes to mind. Um, so yeah, I think it, it could have an effect but I don't necessarily think it's always going to be moderating. It'll depend on the particular circumstances. Thank you. Yeah, it's a great question. Don't be shy. We have uh, ample time for questions if you guys have any. And in general, in political science, it's a bad idea to say your theory invalidates all other theories. Because they're going to be reviewing your book. Sorry. Go ahead, sorry. What was the military view with the Cuban Missile Crisis? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so, I can tell you what Eisenhower said. Okay. Uh, so Eisenhower, there, I mean, there's, it's, it's a very long story. That's, and I don't wanna take up all the time, but I, I'm happy to talk after about it. Um, the military was, um, oh, I'll just tell you the, the, the best vignette. Uh, okay, so uh, General Shoup is uh, in command of the Marine Corps at the time. And um, the civilians are actually talking pretty fast and loose about a land invasion of Cuba. And so in one of the meetings, General Shoup 
puts a map of the United States on the table. And then he takes a transparency of Cuba and he puts it on top of the map. And he shows that it stretches from Washington, D.C. all the way to Detroit. Huge island, right? And then he takes a little speck and he puts the speck on the map of Cuba. And the guys in the room say, what's that? And he says, that gentleman is the island of Tarawa. And it took us 18,000 Marines to take it. I see. Right, so they, they, were, they, they thought maybe a land invasion was, was the only way to solve the crisis, but they were very skeptical that the civilians understood what it would require. Yeah, and then Eisenhower himself has a conversation after with Kennedy, and I think it's on the phone, and Kennedy says, I was worried that if we went after Cuba, uh, they'd go after Berlin. And Eisenhower said, that's the last thing he would have done. So, different, different perspective on things. Do we have any more questions in the audience? Yeah. And just one more addendum to that, the uh, Maxwell Taylor, right, in the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis says, the US was nowhere close to nuclear war during the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was, it's, it's not nearly as, it was not nearly as desperate a situation as, uh, as people make it out to be. So there might be important political reasons for that. Yeah. Hello. Uh, I was intrigued by your last point about um, military realism and you don't necessarily have to have served right. to have this perspective. So what about civilians that work with the defense uh, right. department and, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. policy and have knowledge of doctrine and or also um, civilians and the general public that have family members that have served mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and may have been impacted by their combat experiences of their family members. Right. Um, and then also the counterpoint of, do you think having uh, the, a civilian in Secretary Fish, if I'm correct with his mm -hmm. status, um, as a counterbalance to uh, Rollins, and, mm -hmm. and that interplay between the two of them, do you think having that counterpoint in the cabinet made a difference on the impact of military realism and, and Grant's perspective? So I'm going to do a political ploy here, and I'm going to answer the question that I wanted you to ask. Uh, because I, I think actually the, the, it's a great question, but the, the thing that I, would, that I would focus on in it is that counterbalance, right? Because the argument is not that military realists should be always in charge of foreign policy, right? It's, it actually might be the case, there might be situations where you have to use force and the military is too cautious because of their military realist perspective. And you might have to overrule the military, right? So the, I said they have blind spots, right? They can take that caution too far, I think. So there may be instances in which they've injected their important perspective above force, but then the civilians say, but we're gonna do it, right? Uh, we're gonna use force and uh, you know, hopefully they'll provide them with the means that are necessary, um, though historically that has, that's not a very good track record of that. Um, but I think what we need is a balance, right? The, uh, the situation I want to avoid are situations like the, um, the Kennedy and the LBJ cabinet, and actually even the Nixon cabinet, 
um, not so much the official cabinet, but the sort of informal decision-making processes where they often uh, excluded military officers. Right, so when uh, LBJ, I wish, I can never remember if it's like the Thursday lunches or the Tuesday breakfasts, it's, one, it's like one day of the week and one of the meals. Um, but all the most important decisions about Vietnam are made in that informal scenario. And there's almost never a military officer present, at least one, there's, there's never one there who LBJ doesn't already know that he agrees with him. Right, and this leads to these uh, go look up uh, LBJ uh, and decisions about Vietnam. And you'll see lots of pictures like this, right? Right, and he's like, oh. He's like sitting in his chair, he's agonizing, right? He's acting. He already made the decision, right? He already made the decision at the informal meeting. He's looking, he's looking agonized literally for the camera. Right? I mean, you might think that's a cynical view, but that's what the, the history is telling us is that all those major decisions about Vietnam, he makes those decisions before he goes into the NSC to get them approved by everybody in the room. So if, if I had my druthers, you'd have more military officers and also in the informal decision-making process. Yeah, does that, make, does that sort of answer your question? Okay, yes. And I mean, I think the best uh, way to inculcate a military realist perspective in civilians is by reading military history, right? You can, you can learn about the military realist perspective, uh, and that's, that, that's not that hard. Um, you know, people are interested. All my classes on war are way oversubscribed. Um, so, yeah, I think it would be good for America if, if more people tapped into that perspective. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for your talk. Um, is, this, is this working? No, good. Um, I was curious uh, for your th for your theory and the growth, I know you mentioned the um, growth of both the unprecedented trust in the US military, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm also curious with the kind of like the growth, like, you know, what they call like the imperial presidency. Mm -hmm. I'd be curious your, if you have any thoughts on, from while working on your theory of if another general became president today, would mm -hmm. their greater power you know, have more of an influence. Like you said, the Senate was very jealous of its foreign policy right. prerogatives, which mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. in post 9-11 is very, very different. Yeah, yeah. That's a fantastic question, actually. Um, I would say the job of a military realist president would be significantly, would be made significantly more difficult by the expansion of the administrative state. Uh, in the aftermath, right, so FDR and onwards, really kind of beginning with Wilson, uh, this massive expansion of agencies that are ostensibly in the executive, but that have become incredibly bureaucratically powerful, right? That's why I say military realism doesn't get rid of bureaucratic, bureaucratic politics is still happening. Uh, and I think it would be even more difficult today even if a military realist president um, you know, came into power to stop the bureaucratic uh, interests from pushing the US in, in whatever direction they wanna be pushed in. Um, and honestly, that's, that's something that I haven't given enough thought to. So I'm, I'm worried that I will become even more skeptical if I put too much thought into that, but that's a fantastic question, thank you.
Hello, Dr. Campbell. Um, I was wondering. Hi. Jack, good to see you. Hello. I was wondering um, how geography affects the military realist perspective. Mm. Like, for example, would a military realist be more likely to use force versus like a co country that's closer away versus a country that's further mm -hmm. away? Yeah. Um, this so. I don't want to say military realism is a kitchen sink theory, but you know most theories start to sort of look that way. Geography is incredibly important for military realists because of friction, right? The further the distance, the greater the physical obstacles that you have to traverse to get to where you want to use force, um, the more difficult it's going to be. Um, and I think the, the Shoup, General Shoup example shows that, right? That uh, Cuba's an island, and that's going to be incredibly difficult because you'll have to amphibiously assault an island that's, you know, as long as almost the entire United States. Um, so yeah, uh, and, and I talk about that in, in the, the book on, on doctrine. Um, geography is very important to uh, the sort of threat assessment of military realists, what they think is likely to be possible. Um, again, because they've, they've tried to do it, even if they've only tried to do it in exercises, right? They realize how difficult it is to move a force across an ocean Right, or attack an island uh, that has prepared defenders, for instance. Yeah, so great question. Yeah, it definitely plays a role. This will be our last question of the formal Q&A, but if you guys have lingering questions after I'm sure Dr. If I remember correctly, in your essay on Grant and the Civil War, you placed a, a fair amount of emphasis on Grant's tendency to, I forget how you put it, not worry about what his enemies were going to do, but what right. he was going to do to them. Yeah. Uh, was there any evidence that he took this approach when it came to foreign policy and foreign leaders? Oh, that's a really good question. Yes. Yeah, so the, the, the quote you're referring to, uh, and I'll, I'll say the quote and that'll give me time to think of an answer. Um, Sherman says, I'm smarter at Grant in everything, right? And everything military, I'm better than Grant is. Uh, but where he beats me and where he beats the world is he doesn't give a damn what the enemy does out of his sight, but it scares the hell out of me. Right? That Grant was able to act in situations where he didn't know what the enemy was doing. And that was in part because he was doing his very best to inspire that fear in the enemy instead. Um, I think we might have seen more of that if Grant had seen instances where the use of force was necessary. Um, and we don't see that in his presidency because really his presidency is dominated by diplomacy, not by the use of force. Um, but that's, that's a fantastic question. I, I, I need to give that more thought because it might actually be in the background and I'm just not picking it up. So appreciate it. And that's also my favorite quote from Sherman about that. <laughs> well, let's give another round of applause to Dr. Campbell. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that concludes this uh, event tonight. If you guys, again, have any questions for us regarding the school, making a gift to IWP, or just want to chat with current students, uh, please find a staff member. Uh, we're also students as well, uh, outside in the lobby or just around. So thank you guys again for coming.